All right. Well, welcome to another episode of the Door of Hope Leadership Podcast, which exists to get hopefully helpful conversations in the hands of leaders and anybody else who's interested around the church. Um, I am Cameron, and I am here with my friend, Mr. Todd Lyles. Hey, Todd. Hey, Cam. How you doing, man? Good. Sweet. Todd. Tell us a little bit about yourself. <laughs> what are you? <laughs> what are you? Uh, okay, what's your role at Door of Hope? Yeah, so I am responsible uh, for shepherding the young people in our community. Uh, so youth pastor, and just being on the pastoral staff and kind of giving a helping hand. Wow. Well, yeah. how, how long have you been in that role? Uh, since April. Sweet. So is that four or five months? Uh, however many that is, Ish. we've loved having you, man. Oh, thanks, dude. It's been awesome. Um, give us, give us like your one or two or three. Like, what are your favorite things to do? What are you into? Yeah, I, I feel like I have to say school because it's mm. kind of like a for, force my hand. Yes, I, I love school. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm in graduate school at Western Seminary. Um, and I, I do, I do truly enjoy it. It's been awesome. Uh, so studies and, and Bible studying Bible stuff, uh, in the life of Jesus. I love hanging out with my family, married two kids. Awesome. Um, I love music and I love running. I run quite a bit. Yep. So seeing you jogging out there on Mount Tabor in my shorty shorts in the shorty shorts. Yeah. <laughs> Got to have that, that freedom for the legs to really, really flow. That's what I, yeah, that's, that's it. That's about what I do. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, for you listening, we are going to dive into a subject that is uh, pretty rarely anyone's favorite subject of Christian theology. And that is the idea of, uh, God's judgment and and why um, though it's often thought of as kind of a negative doctrine uh, I, my conviction is when viewed from the right angle it's actually a pretty important and compelling part of the good news of it is it is good news for us that God that, that the good God described in the scriptures is judge that said however long this conversation ends up being uh, we we do just want to acknowledge like this is a hard conversation and it's can get emotional um it gets wrapped up with some very personal issues um it's, it's just difficult for a lot of reasons we're going to touch on some hard things like even the doctrine of hell and some stuff like that and so we don't want to be dismissive and, and pretend that we're going to get to the bottom of this in 40 minutes or whatever um, but we do at the same time think these are conversations that are worth having. Um, even though they're difficult, they're worth spending some time getting into. And even if we can't get fully to the bottom, our hope is that what we talk about will, will at least provide a little bit of a way forward as you start talking about this in community around the church. And so we've got, as always, uh, a PDF that you can check out that has more resources, some sermons, podcasts, books, to dive deeper and to think more about this, but yeah, we're going to, we're going to try to do the best we can in a short amount of time to at least kind of get the ball rolling. So how's that sound to you, Todd? Yeah, let's do it. Sweet. Here's a question for you. Why do you think when people talk about the doctrine of God's judgment, we all, and I'll put myself in this category, tend to get a little squirmy. Mm. What's hard. What's hard about this conversation? Uh, yeah, I, I th- you know, I th- there is like a pejorative or negative connotation that kind of surrounds it. And I think just the idea of being evaluated <laughs> is mm. not, not comfortable. Yeah. Um, and evaluated to such a extreme personal, intimate extent that all the things that I've done past, present, and future will, will be looked at. Like that's, that's really intensely uncomfortable. Um, at least for me it is. Sure. I think, I think there's also, it kind of comes up against, 
Um, you know, it feels like one of non-Christians favorite Bible verses is judge not lest you be judged. Yeah. Um, and those are the words of Jesus and Jesus meant them. But if you keep reading, he also, uh, it's really a teaching against hypocrisy in judgment rather than believers, rather than teaching against believers, like exercising moral judgment at all. Um, And that's kind of what's often missed in that discussion. And, yeah, we like being judgmental is kind of I don't know maybe one of our our culture's greatest sins. Mm-hmm. It feels like, and so we all we all very very much don't want to be judgmental in some sort of neg- overly negative or hypocritical way. And there's something good about that, um, and yet it can sour us on the very idea altogether of judgment being really a, a necessary and, and healthy thing. I mean, at the end of the day, to make any moral proclamation, which, of course, pe- people should have morality, um, you have to, like, judgment is right next to that. The existence of morality, of right, wrong, of good, bad, it requires judgment. And fortunately for us, for, for Christians, for people who believe uh, what God's revealed in the scriptures, uh, it's not arbitrary judgment, but it's rooted in God's character um, and what he's revealed in his very nature. And so we, we, we don't have to sit back and be the inventors or the arbiters of what's right, what's wrong. We have an authoritative source we can go, go to who has, in my opinion, proven himself to be trustworthy mm-hmm. and proven himself to be the, the only person in existence I could possibly trust with making and defining what healthy judgment looks like and what the standards of that judgment Mm -hmm. are um so yeah it's a big it's a big conversation Mm -hmm. um but let's dive in (laughs) okay um so one of the things i thought would be helpful a helpful way to kind of frame this would be to kind of raise some common questions some tough questions that come up when we start talking about god being a judge um and his justice and so forth. Uh, so I'm just going to kind of pitch these and we can bat them around. How's that sound? Perfect. Sweet. Well, the first one is this, uh, and I hear, I hear this a lot, but it's, it's this, how could we trust the character of a judging God? Um, if God is, is judgmental, the implication is kind of like, if, if God is judgmental, uh, isn't he some? Doesn't that make him some sort of tyrant? Doesn't that make him some sort of? Is, is that evil? I mean, judge not, right? <laughs> My mind tends to go to the first place in the scriptures where we're introduced to the character of God, or we're becoming aware of the character of God in Genesis one, uh, Genesis one, two, and three, and even though the the verb to judge or um, the Hebrew verb to judge isn't being used in the first three chapters. Um, I think there's this implied ability that God has to know and discern and judge between what's good and what's not good. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's fundamental to this creator God's character. And I I think that's being established from the get go. And not only does this God know what's good and what's not good? But he knows what's good. And part of that is it's good for the humans hmm. and it's good for blessing and flourishing. And so his good is not at our odds. Like yeah. it's, it's partly for us and for his creation yeah, um, and for our blessing and flourishing. And so right there, I'm like, well, okay, I'm, I'm being invited to see this creator God as the knower of good and not good. And that actually him knowing between good and not good is for my benefit yeah, and for my flourishing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what I think of when this question comes up is um, there's really two passages that to me really illuminate so much about God's God's character as well. One is uh, in Exodus 34. It's kind of one of mm-hmm. God's first major like epic moments of self-disclosure uh, to Moses in this case. But 
It says that he is the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will who but who will by no means clear the guilty. And it, it continues on. But that that to me is such a powerful picture because it, it captures both his long suffering um, love towards sinful humanity and yet the aspect of his personality that still is a protector you know sometimes we hear who will not clear the guilty and we're like whoa that seems kind of harsh but uh, but I, to me it reads as because of his great love he's not going to let evil and sin and death just run rampant without him ever coming in and saying no no further mm-hmm. um, and then I to me that that description of God is fully realized when we then look at the incarnation of the son when we look at the person of Jesus. Um, and in fact, in, um, in Hebrews one, when the author of Hebrews at the very beginning, he's, he's talking about how God revealed himself in various ways, but now he's revealed himself in son, the fullness of who God is. We get the clearest picture in the incarnation of Jesus. Um, and so for me, it's really important that we remember that this is the God who sits in judgment. Mm-hmm. It's not a fallen judge like us. It's not someone who's corruptible. He's not someone who's um, bribable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, we, you know, all the worst things we think about how some how a, a human judge can be corrupted or show partiality. Mm-hmm. No, this is this is the Lord Jesus, the 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 self-giving sacrificial servant leader. Um, who laid down his life for those he loved. That's the, that's the judge. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes me just want to turn around in response and ask the question, uh, how could we actually trust anyone else with mm-hmm. the responsibility of judgment? You know, who else is fit besides this God? Yeah. And I, I'm painfully aware of my own inability to judge. <laughs> and I, I, and even when I do judge, uh, you know, tr- trying to avoid it at all costs. But when I find myself judging, it's so bent in my own direction and self-interest and how crooked. And yeah, it's so, um, what am I trying to say? Yeah, it's just bent. It's broken. Yeah. And I think that's part of the hard reality of of being a broken human is that mm. I'm such a I make such a terrible judge yeah um, yeah yeah the whole of human history in some ways is is proof of that the, the proof of that is the story <laughs> of humanity making for terrible judges mm-hmm. when we when we try to usurp God's God's judging role from him um well, let's move to a second question. And some of these kind of overlap and bleed together, but ho- hopefully they're still worth asking. And that's this. It, one thing that comes up a lot is, isn't a judging God, the idea of a judging God, just in conflict with a God of love? Sometimes people think these are two irreconcilable ideas. God is love and God judges. I don't know. What do you think, man? I mean, I... No, I don't. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Like God has to be one or the other. They're not at odds with one another. Because I, I mean, I have a category for this. I think as a dad, even, um, you know, my, my three-year-old son Foster isn't perceptive to my ability to judge what is what I think is appropriate for him or good for him and not good for him. He's not necessarily concerned with, Oh, like daddy's so wise and knows what's (laughs) good and not good for me. So I trust in him. And part of that, you know, again, he's not perceptive to part of, part of me judging between what's good for him and what's not good for him comes out of my care and love and desire for him to flourish. Mm. And so I, it's, you know, that's where my mind initially goes. But even, like, even going back to the, to Genesis, God's a, God's ability to, 
discern and know and judge between what's good and what's not good for his creation. Um, it's in the human's best interest. Yeah. And I think the, the, the really interesting question becomes, or the really interesting question for me pops up when part of what God discerns is good for his creation after, after Adam and Eve take of the fruit is that it's, it's, it's not good, but it's good for humans to be pushed out of the garden and beginning to see that as some sort of act of mercy. Mm. Um, and it, it is judgment. I mean, yeah. God has judged. Um, but part of, part of his judgment is, is exiling the humans from the garden. And I, I think that that's the interesting question for me. When, how is that part of, how does that begin to fit in God, in the narrative of how God loves us and cares for his creation? Yeah. Um, that there, it's, he doesn't want us to live forever in this state. Yeah. Um, and so, which then poses the question, okay, what's he going to do about it? Yeah. How's he going to reconcile all this? Yeah. That's really well said. I also think it's really interesting to ask the question of what, what would a God of love look like who didn't exercise judgment just to do that thought experiment? Mm -hmm. And so if we've, if the fact of the matter is sin has entered the world, sin has marred all of humanity. We all carry it. We all participate in it. But if God were to say, I just love, and I don't get into that judgment business, what would happen? I mean, you imagine like a serial abuser Mm -hmm. who, uh, God is able to only just love this person without judgment um, in the face of this repeated and ongoing abuse of those around him or her. It's pretty quickly, as soon as you consider his victims, <laughs> like love begins, any sort of nebulous idea of love begins mm-hmm. to crumble. So mm-hmm. he's just a God who's sort of applauding all behavior, no matter how destructive or harmful. I think justice demands that he he be able to look at that abuse and say, this is wrong, mm-hmm. and I am going to work against this. And, and someday I'm going to put a final end where this will never happen again, to step into the gap uh, to protect the vulnerable. To me, that's a really sanity-making thought experiment to put yourself through in this conversation. Yeah, and I, personally, I think that's where the Psalms have been really impactful for mm. me to read mm. through the emotion that you know uh, that in particular that David has when David has judged <laughs> that the people around him are unfaithful and that they're enemies of not only himself uh, but of God as well and it tears David in half and he's like God you have to do something yeah judge please judge please judge (laughs) like see like don't turn a blind eye to this injustice and judge like come and separate and rightly judge and i think that's that's brought a strange comfort on one hand it brings a strange comfort to me because it's like okay that feeling of what is going on like god where are you? Like, come judge, like, you know, judge that this is not good. Like this thing that's happening is not good and do something about it. But then I think to David's response is really intense, especially in Psalm 139, David turns that lens. So he's perceived and he's judged not good people that are doing not good things. Yeah. And then he turns the focus and camera back on himself mm-hmm. and God look at me. And if there's any not good things in me, lead me in the other direction yes. in a, in the way everlasting. And so, yeah, I think the Psalms, David is just begging for God to judge. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> man. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. So, and you'll, you'll, you'll catch the theme here as you listen. We, we, I, there, there's kind of a question that I think is 
even the more profound counter question that we'll ask at the end of each of these little discussions. But for this one, to me, it's like, in response, how could we call God truly loving if he just kept forever turning a blind eye to sin, evil, suffering, and death? I mean, I, I think that's the more troubling question um, rather yeah. than how does his judgment and love coincide. Should we do number three? Yeah. Sweet. This one, again, flows from the other two, but it just says this. Wouldn't the world be a better place without judgment? Um, I think of the classic quintessential example of this uh, for me is the John Lennon song, Imagine. You know, where he's literally just saying, imagine if there's no heaven, imagine if there's no God, imagine what it might be like if there's no judgment day. Uh, Wouldn't we all just live in perfect harmony? Wouldn't all these divisive things uh, fade away and there'd be... But that's what would create utopia. That's what would create heaven on earth if we could just get rid of these sort of out, outdated, judgmental um, ideas. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah I, I, that's a really interesting question because I, I think the answer would vary depending on who you asked. And I think if you asked, again, to go back to Psalm 139, if you asked a person that was being actively oppressed like really, really oppressed and persecuted. And then you came to them and said, Hey, wouldn't the world be a better place if nobody judged? <laughs> you know, I, it's just, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's absurd. Good point, man. And it, it's just, it, that notion is just absurd that no, like there's something in me that knows that perceives that this is not good. And and then again, going back to David, David looks to God to judge, please judge, yeah. please. No, actually what we need is your judgment. Yeah. And, you know, for some that that's for some that brings relief from the oppression and for some, uh, it's, it's the oppressors, I guess. It, that's when it gets really uncomfortable and terrifying yeah. and um yeah totally and i think too you know god's judgment involves both his his moral definitions so his establishment of right and wrong that's just rooted in who he is and his character so there's that piece of it and then there's the active like okay now he's going to hold humanity accountable mm-hmm. for actually living in light of what he's revealed about morality and uh without both of those like i I just can't find any other human basis for like holding people accountable to anything so the whole history Mm -hmm. in some respects the whole history of like western philosophy at least as it rubs up against ethics is the story of humans trying to ground moral obligation and something other than God, mm-hmm. you know, um, trying to say, look, well, maybe we can turn to utilitarianism and look mm-hmm. at outcomes, or maybe we can look at pragmatism or, and, you know, or, you know, more things like postmodernism that become a bit more skeptical of the whole ethical enterprise. But basically to my knowledge, there's no other credible, like mm-hmm. there's no credible way to ground morality and hold people accountable uh, once you jettison the idea of a judging, law-giving God. And so I just think it seems like an utter pipe dream to imagine if we take away the one source for an authoritative, accountability-inducing morality that humans are just going to decide magically that, well, no, all of a sudden we're just going to treat one another mm-hmm. uh, respectfully and lovingly. <laughs> it's, which, yeah, which I think is... That's when the scriptures, I think, are so profound and that they speak to that very tension and dilemma that we find ourselves in where at the root of the story is, hey, there's this creator God that knows between good and not good. And the humans take it upon themselves to to judge for themselves what's good and what's not good. 
that's the core yeah. of the story. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then there's, you know, the, the narrative exploration of what happens because of the humans taking it upon themselves to not trust in the judgment of the creator God and to take it upon themselves to judge. And it goes south so fast. And so, <laughs> and so yeah, it's, it's deeply, it, I mean, it's, it's tragic, but it's, the irony there is just, it's just wild. <laughs> totally. Totally. So I would say in response, the, the deeper question is how could we make sense of morality, make sense of human dignity, or really ascribe any value to life at all without a judging God sort of scaffolding those ideas? Um, I, I've yet to find a good answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so number four. This is a really, this is an important one. Doesn't the idea of a judging God always lead its people into violence? Hmm. People who hold that idea, aren't they more prone to violence? Doesn't that justify radically violent judgment from those religious followers? Yeah, man, this this is where you know not to not to hang totally hang my hat on David but I, again I go back to the psalms and I think there's this the psalms set this precedent to where you know you're establishing you're trusting in God's ability to judge between what's good and what's not good and the even the violent emotion that that stirs in us um, is not, you know, it's not something that I think that the Psalms give us license to act on. Yeah. Um, and I, again, even, even again, in Psalm 139, not only does David identify there, these are not good people doing not good things that are in rebellion against you, God. And he, you know, the, the nerdy way to talk about it is the imprecatory psalms where there's this apparent like wishing violence yeah. on those that that are doing not good yeah. um, things that it's first and foremost brought to the judge yep. to truly judge yep. between and then the camera is turned back on the psalmist on David like oh I, I perceive it in them but then God, judge me. Like, see if there's any not good way in me and lead me in your way, like the way yes. that's everlasting. And I think for me, that really puts a kibosh on this idea that the way that true and faithful judgment is carried out is through violence. I, yes. just, I just don't even... Um, yeah, I... But I, I, that's a, that kind of opens up another can of worms. Sure, sure. And I know that's really nuanced. And sure. But yeah, I, I would start there. Like, man, trust again, trusting God to to judge rightly. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's plenty of New Testament passages that really call the Christian to leave final judgment to God. I think of Romans 12, 14, 20 through 21, James 4, 12. Um, but anecdotally, and this is a story I've heard Tim Keller use several times. He quoted from this book and then I went and read the book. It's very, very profound, but it's by a Croatian theologian named Miroslav Volf. And he wrote this book, yeah, called Exclusion and Embrace. And basically he's tackling this idea head on. And I'm just going to quote from him here. He says this. My thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many Christians. And let me pause there. So what he's putting forward in the book is that if you actually want to have a nonviolent predisposition, you have to have a judging God. That's what his book's about. So he's saying that idea is going to be unpopular with many Christians. I'll keep, keep reading especially theologians in the West. To the person who's inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone. 
Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburb home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. His point is, and it takes the quiet of a suburb, it takes kind of the privileged, like sequestered, suffering free lives that I will speak for myself that I've experienced to, for that idea to take root. He says, if you've actually experienced your loved ones being slain before you, the only thing that will stop you from picking up your sword and going and exacting revenge is the promise that there is a God who sees this, who cares about it, and who will put it right one day. Mm -hmm. He says, if we don't have that belief, why on earth would we not just go (laughs) and get even? And that's most, that's usually what humans do. They go and exact vengeance, which invites vengeance in return. And it's just kind of a, an endless batting back and forth of, of violence and affliction. Uh, but the gospel way is different. It's, it'll, we can lay down our swords because in part, because we trust that there is a God who will finally judge. And yes, in the back of all this is the promise of, of grace to any who would trust in Christ, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, but part of it also is the reality that God will judge. So we don't have to, that's powerful (laughs) to me. I think that's such a profound insight. Yeah. And I think it forces, you know, if you don't have an an eternal perspective, it forces your hand (laughs) to begin to reckon with eternal perspective where it may not be righted. The wrongs may not be righted um, right this second in the way that I think they should or I, I perceive that they should be righted. But it, I don't know. In me, it creates a sense of patience and trust and sadness, to be honest. Yeah. Um, like, God, why are you waiting? Yeah. Um, like, why come, come, like, Come now, come judge, now, do it, judge now. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, but again, like, yeah, asking asking that question um, to someone that's being actively wronged in a really, really in a life threatening way, in a really tragic, torturing, life threatening way. I think the the notion that like this won't be taken care of that. God won't judge this. So there's not a God to, ju- I think it's just totally absurd. Um, yeah. 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 So in response, I would ask with, without a judging God, what possibly could keep people from perpetuating endless cycles of violence against one another? I mean, what else is going to get you out of that feedback loop of mm-hmm. returning sword for sword, unless there's a good judge who can actually, impartially and with full wisdom and full like knowledge um, be that judge in your stead. Yeah. This is where I think it's really like Jesus's invitation to participate in God's kingdom essentially early. (laughs) So there's that, you know, whole paradox of the kingdom is, is here already, but not yet. Yeah. And I I think this is where that, that paradox gets really interesting or that tension gets really interesting because Jesus is inviting us to participate in the way in the the way of the kingdom in a world that doesn't acknowledge the kingdom. Yeah. And clearly Jesus did that and what let's look what happened, you know, what happened to him. <laughs> and I think to to break that feedback loop interestingly enough, I think Jesus's answer was to it, you're going to have to betray at some point every emotion and sense of logic that you have and participate in God's kingdom now 
and uh, that's what breaks the loop. Yeah. And then God will, God will judge yeah. uh, when when His day comes. Yeah. And and so I think for me that's that's the the quick and dirty answer is the way it's broken is you participate in the kingdom now, and we look to Jesus for how that's faithfully done. Yeah. And then it's really hard. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So the next question. Um, does judgment fly in the face of Jesus's mercy and grace? This is, again, kind of a similar question to does judgment conflict with love? But now we're specifically zeroing in on, on the mercy and grace of the gospel uh, that Jesus accomplished by his death and resurrection. Here's what I would say. First of all, God's judgment is not in conflict with the idea that God desires that no one should be excluded from eternity with him. Second Peter 3.9 makes that super clear that the offer is to all. His heart is that none should perish. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his son. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, he desires reconciliation with all, and yet not all will receive reconciliation or be reconciled. Um, the offer of salvation by grace alone through faith alone is offered to any and anyone, any and everyone who would receive it. And then I even think there's a profound wrinkle here. Even those people who openly reject Jesus, even for them, he continues to pour out his common grace and favor on them. Like even as people are looking at the, at God incarnate, considering the person of Jesus and saying, no, I don't want you. I don't want you as my king. He still continues to sustain their life and to allow them to enjoy things on earth, to bring the sun and the rains and all the goodness of creation upon them. The doctrine of common grace to me is just such a powerful doctrine that highlights his goodness. And then even then, his mercy and grace must also include the practical protection. We've already touched on this a bit, but the practical protection of those people that he loves. And so as he, like, if if I were inflicting violence on you, Todd, and uh, the Lord was burdened for you as he, as he would be, um, his care for you must also involve his restraint of, of me mm-hmm. <laughs> in that scenario. Yeah. And so to show you mercy and grace in that scenario, he must, he must restrain Cameron. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I think they're once again, just beautifully complementary ideas. That's unfortunate. They get pitted against one another so often. Yeah. And, and again, I think that's where my mind goes back to Genesis three and, in my understanding and our understanding of in some amazingly strange way God's part of God's mercy in pushing and exiling humans out of the garden is an is an act of mercy yeah and the Lord God said the man so this is verse 22 the man has now become like one of us knowing judging good and evil yeah he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden uh, to work and take the ground from which he'd been taken. And, and so I know it's, it's, there's some, I think there's something there with God's mercy and God's banish, God's banishment of the humans from the garden is, is in some way, um, an act of mercy for the humans, for creation um, at large, and 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 then I would follow that up with God's desire is for us to have everlasting life through Jesus, His Son, and Jesus Himself in Revelation twenty two says, "Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right back to the tree of life." Yeah. So we're getting back to the tree of life that they may go through the gates into the city. And then there's this picture from the prophets of the city, but outside of the city. And they're talking about the separation yeah. of 
outside of the city are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, sexual immorality, murders, idolaters. And I think that, that, that separation of good and not good is in itself an act of mercy. That's really, it's definitely not a cultural, uh, it's not popular culturally to begin to make those distinctions. But it is part of God's mercy towards his creation. Yeah. And it uh, it was in Josh Butler's book, The Skeleton in God's Closet, that we've, we've got uh, referenced here on the page. Um, I would wholeheartedly recommend that book. But he really frames that issue in a really interesting way. I, I, think, is, I think is right. I think it's right on the money. He basically says, you know, look, like the offer, when you really get down to it, the offer of... Uh, salvation and then sanctification the idea that believers once they come to faith begin a process of being conformed more and more to the image of Jesus and then glorification the idea that one day uh, in the resurrection sin will finally have been dealt with and all of like the sinful elements of ourselves will be gone be given a new transformed resurrection body free from the taint of sin um you keep all those ideas in mind and what you realize is the kingdom is going to be uh, it's for everyone who who has allowed Jesus to clean them up and to mm-hmm. purify them and to remove all their worst aspects mm-hmm. um, so it will be a community of people who no longer harm one another who no longer take advantage of one another because we've allowed Jesus to accomplish that work within us those who are excluded from the kingdom, who are outside the city gates, and we're about to talk about hell, um, which these the idea of outside the gate and hell are very closely interlinked. Mm-hmm. Um, those are simply the people who refused to let Jesus clean them up, though mm-hmm. he offered to, though he, he desires, it says, that none should perish. They're the ones who said, no, I will not let you make me the kind of person that's safe for eternity. And to me, that's such a profound, yeah, and profoundly important thing to remember in this conversation. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's not a popular claim culturally to trust that there is a way to be truly human, and part of the way that we can be truly human is to trust God's judgment of what's good and what's not good for us and for others. And submitting yourself to that in Jesus, because he's the one that did it and was faithful to do it and shows us Hebrews most faithfully what God is like. Um, that, yeah, I mean, that's really profound to make that to make that claim that there is a way to be truly human. And part of the foundation of the core of that way to be truly human is to trust God's judgment of what's good and what's not good for me and for others yep. and submitting to that. And that's not, that's not popular. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> no, but yeah, it, it's, it's again, like so many of these, it's such a powerful idea that if you just look at it from a slightly different angle mm-hmm. than, than the one that it's usually presented from, it actually becomes really beautiful and like something that, for me, drives me to worship. Like, wow, what an amazing thing that God is going to perfect a people and he's in his love going to keep them safe mm-hmm. from those who would ultimately do harm to them. Yeah. Like, we have to have that idea yeah. for any of these ideas about heaven, I mean, the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation, the kingdom and its fullness to actually make sense. Mm-hmm. Or else we've just once again got a fallen world full of abuse and pain and sin and evil and death. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So that, that is a nice little dovetail into what's our, our last big question, which is how could hell possibly be just? <laughs> uh, this is a hard one and maybe it's worth repeating again here that we're not going to get to the bottom of, of all these issues and every question that one might ask, but mm-hmm. What's up with hell, Todd? <laughs> uh, oh, man. Well, I, I think it's been really helpful for me to ask the question of how do I have a biblically grounded view 
of of separation from God or exi- being exiled from God's presence, yeah. how do I begin to form my biblical imagination when it comes to that? And yeah. I think the, 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 I mean, besides that Genesis three passage and just the very idea of being exiled from God's presence when being in God's presence is so good. Yeah. Being exiled from God's presence is not good. And so I think that in and of itself should be scary enough. Yeah. To, um, but then I think the picture that Jeremiah uh, paints. So Jeremiah chapter 7. Um, yeah, where there's this image of this valley outside of Israel where uh, the Israelites have been unfaithful to Yahweh and they essentially create this mini hell. They're sacrificing their sons and daughters to idols and Mm -hmm. literally sacrificing them and burning them. And this valley is just full of destruction and fire and sacrifice and just total terror and this is the this is the beginning i guess or not the beginning but this is a, a beginning of the image of fire and just utter pain and terror um but it actually i think one of the really interesting parts of the image is that it's started by the humans yeah and it's started by the humans worship of not only themselves, but of false gods. And yeah, it's just utterly terrifying to think that part of separation, being exiled from God's presence, is this destruction that humans and, and their worship of false gods and themselves, they bring on themselves. And then they're fully given over to. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, not to distance God's hand from... Uh, you know, I mean, this gets into God's wrath and 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 that that whole thing. But um, that I think that was that was important for me to begin to establish and ground and anchor my biblical imagination and perspective on what what the Bible begins to paint uh, separation from God to be like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's really worth noting too that I mean. I'm sure you were going to get there. Maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but the Valley of Hinnom that you're referring to mm-hmm. is is exactly the same image that that's what Jesus refers to mm-hmm. so many times when he talks about hell. Mm-hmm. Um, so of of any individual in the Bible, it's really interesting to note that Jesus talks more about hell than than any other, um, and he often uses that the word Gehenna. He's referring to that very place outside the city. Uh, the place with this this trash heap with fire where Israel had gone and basically made sacri- child sacrifice mm-hmm. to other gods. That is Jesus's <laughs> reference point for like the fate of those mm-hmm. who reject him, essentially. Yeah, and, and I think it becomes really terrifying, you know, string beginning to string those images together with Genesis three and the humans exiles, the human exile from the garden and God's presence. And then the way the prophets begin to talk about the new Jerusalem and then, and the new city where the people will be reunited with God's presence and the people will be with God and God will be with the people, but outside of the city, is a place like this. And then it picks back up in Revelation 22 that to be outside of this city where the people are with God and God are with the people is, is sheer terror and sheer pain and destruction and the humans worship of themselves and these other false gods. And yeah, not, not ideal. (laughs) Far from ideal. (laughs) Um, And I, I think too, like even just to, it's a little bit it's a little bit intense to think about but even further on in the the Jeremiah passage in 7 and in the beginning of 8 God says wherever I banish these people 
all the survivors of this evil nation will prefer death to life. And I think that's, that's one of the really, uh, you know, that, that shapes my view of what's going on with God separating good from not good mm-hmm. and exiling not good from his good creation that the humans that are in the not good place outside of the city prefer death. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's dark. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, it's super, super dark. But then that, that, then I go back to David. (laughs) I don't, I prefer life. Yeah. Teach me, lead me, see if there's any hurtful, not good way in me and then teach me in the way everlasting that's true life because I want to be in the city with God (laughs) yeah that's so good man I think I think one other thing when we talk about hell that's really good to kind of mention is so often our imagination you've you've kept using the phrase biblical imagination and it's such a good one so often our imagination around this topic is not formed by the Bible Mm, yeah in fact like medieval conceptions of hell are just so strong in the back of many of our minds. I know for myself too, and like think about things like Dante's Inferno, Mm -hmm. where you've got these kind of grotesque torture chambers where either Satan is, it's like Satan's kingdom and he's joyfully running the show and tormenting people, or it's God himself who is the joyful tormentor of suffering people. And it's really important that we don't let kind of those cultural conceptions define us in the same way that we shouldn't let all the pictures we've all seen inevitably of angels as babies, Mm -hmm. as naked babies with harps on clouds, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like determine our view. The Bible says something very different Um, and it, it, it does about hell as well. It speaks of hell as a real place and it uses this variety of images a lot of metaphors, a lot of it's in apocalyptic literature, but the the theme is consistent and it does contain these ideas of punishment, banishment, separation, destruction, uh, but we don't get anything like some sort of sadistic torture chamber, I don't think, when we closely read, read the texts. And yeah. We have to keep the character of God in mind as we're considering these ideas too. I mean, how far does that fall from the basic depiction of who God is that we've already talked about earlier? Yeah. And that's where I think Jesus's use of that, the imagery in Jeremiah in uh, the Valley of ben uh, is so grounding for me because part of the dynamic there is the humans, <laughs> it's destruction that's come from the hands of the humans. And, you know, if even if the Genesis three passage of God in His mercy pushing the humans away from the tree of life, even if you were to jump from Genesis three to Revelation twenty two, when Jesus is saying the whole goal is to get back to the tree of life, yeah. I mean, even even just take just totally ripping those two passages out and sitting next together, next to each other, there's this assumption that God is distancing us from eternal life for a reason to get back to eternal life, to the tree of life. And so even that tells me that, man, this God is this good creator God that knows between good and not good is deeply committed to us getting back to the tree of life to everlasting true human life with in perfect union with God. And of course, Jesus is the embodiment of all that. I think God's deeply committed to his world and his good world and it being a good world and deeply committed to getting the humans back to yeah. uh, everlasting, true everlasting life. Yeah. But there's some that will prefer otherwise. Yeah. That's the great tragedy. Those pictures, however we read those last chapters of Revelation, there's something that always deeply disturbs me about the idea of people seeing the king in all his glory and saying, no, I don't want you. Mm. 
I want to be outside the city, outside the program. Yeah, and I I think that's where like Josh Girls has a lyric uh, um, talking about essentially the day of the Lord and when all this comes to fruition that some will rejoice and others will fuss and I think that's such a and then again and then I turn the camera back on myself will I rejoice when God comes to judge yeah good and not good or will I fuss and I want to I want to rejoice <laughs> yeah um but yeah there are some that will fuss and that yeah. um yeah pretty terrifying that's yeah. enough that's enough that's enough for me to like want to <laughs> not be outside the city yeah um, amen so my my response question here would be what I mean what else should be done with people who refuse to enter into ultimate peace with God and fellow man mm-hmm. like if you've got people who are refusing in Josh Butler's words to be cleaned up in the biblical language, refusing to be sanctified, refusing to be conformed to the image of Jesus, mm-hmm. who will not part with their sin, what else would you have God do with them? Mm-hmm. Let them into the city to continue the patterns of destruction that have plagued human history thus far? Graffiti his good world. Yeah. <laughs> Graffiti the good world, yeah. Um, I think that's that's the more disturbing question. Mm-hmm. Like, wh- what alternative would you propose? Um so, yeah, and it's interesting because I think that's part of the the conundrum and the difficulty of where we're at is, I think, to that question, and I'm paraphrasing here, and so I, I tread lightly, but I think to that question, right now, Jesus and Paul invite us to serve. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you have somebody that is, like, just being a total butthead and, and is fussing and refusing and rebelling and yeah, you serve them. Yeah. You pray for them and you, you pray Psalm 139 and you serve them and you acknowledge their humanness. I mean, that's such a tough call. Yeah. And then entrust that, that final judgment to God's good, perfect discernment and judgment. Yeah. That's good, man. Well, those are, the big questions I wanted to get through this time. Uh, we are nearing the end of our time here, but we would be really remiss not to discuss one final point that's kind of the centerpiece of this whole thing, and that's this, that Jesus Christ has already borne the world's judgment. I mean, the whole point of the cross is that Jesus has actually already borne the judgment of God against sin and evil. In a certain sense, he has already suffered hell, experiencing punishment, destruction, banishment on the cross. On the cross that ultimately took his life outside the walls of Jerusalem. Like all these images kind of apply to him. Um, And though every single person has embraced sin and evil in all kinds of ways, he did this in the place of anyone who would repent and trust in him. Um. So Keller put this well in, in his sermon called Accepting the Judge. He said, in a very powerful sense, if you're in Christ, you have already had your judgment day. If you're listening to this, I want you to really hear that. Like, as we talk about big, heavy, hard ideas of judgment, mm-hmm. the cross declared, you have already had your judgment day. Jesus had it for you. What a beautiful message. What a powerful, powerful thing. Uh, may that drive us to worship him <laughs> and to be so grateful yeah. for the cross and the fact that that's God himself entering entering the gap and taking the punishment on himself. Yeah, just to just to be claimed by Jesus, you know, not to like you know take meaning and significance away from it, but on the day you know the day of the Lord, or, you know judgment day just to be able to just pray in humility like Jesus I just pray that you would claim me as yours on that day please that's what other hope do I have yeah you've seen who I am and what I've done Jesus I have no other hope 
but for you to claim me on that day. Yes. And like, whoa, yeah, like let's worship. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm so, I'm so, so grateful. <sighs> well, I think we probably ought to wrap things up. Um, Sweet. As we mentioned, there is a PDF that has kind of a lot of this laid out uh, on a two-page document. There are some additional resources, a couple of sermons, uh, video, um, a few books. Uh, if, if some of this has piqued your interest, you should check those out. Keep learning, keep digging in. and uh, I'd love for Door of Hope to continue to grow to be the kind of community that can recognize and celebrate God's good judgment. Not mischaracterize it, not make it conform to stereotypes that have been around but to see it for what it is biblically, to trust God's goodness in it, and to see it as actually an integral part of how God is going to actually set all things right. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what I hope for. So this was brief. Uh, There's a lot more to say, um, but uh, we're out of time. Yep. (laughs) Todd, thanks so much for your time, man. This is really Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. All right, until next time, we'll see you later. Yeah, see you guys.